I'm Frederick Gerten, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. So, Miss Advocate, you are in your basement in Ottawa? Still in my bunker. 16 months later, still here. But we've been, we've been doing this show now for, for a full year. It's kind of crazy. It's amazing. Thanks to this pandemic. <laughs> we meet, we see each other all the time. Exactly. <laughs> With a very safe distance. <laughs> <laughs> so... I mean, Push, we met first time in London, we were in Chile, and then we flew up to, to Toronto, where we made the first shots uh, for the film. And, and I've, be, I've been coming to Toronto for over 15 years uh, for the amazing festival, film festival Hot Dogs, but also to shoot. I did Bike versus Cars, and, and we shot for Push in, in Toronto. I've also been showing my other films on on the amazing Bloor Cinema and other theaters around Canada. So it's, I, I have a, a very nice relation to Toronto. But today we're going to talk about Toronto. We are. Because it's a hot city. A lot of things happen. Tell me, what is going on in Toronto? There are a lot of things going on in Toronto. For me, the sort of number one issue that hit my radar, certainly during the pandemic, has been the growth of people living in homelessness in parks right in downtown Toronto and many, many people and many parks. And it's causing a lot of conflict, unfortunately. I can totally understand that. Uh, it's a bit scary with a lot of homeless people when you are out walking your dog or you're having a picnic somewhere. So I, I, I understand it. But it's a very, it's a sad sign that when I've been in Toronto, I've seen for every year I've been coming back, I see more and more homeless people. It's not what you expect from Canada. But anyway, we have a guest. We do. We have a guest. And our guest is a city councillor for Ward 11 in, in, in Toronto, Mike Layton. Welcome to Pushback Talks. Thank you very much, Frederick. So your city has some challenges, it seems. Well, this is a th this is a crisis that has been growing, I would say, over the past two decades. Uh, with st starting with a, a, a provincial government that started changing the way we were addressing the needs of individuals, uh, particularly with uh, mental health and addiction uh, um, issues and that, that really started forcing them out of government-supported uh, housing and programs and, and pushed them into, uh, into, the, into the streets. And the problem's gotten worse because over the last two decades, the affordability in the city of Toronto uh, for housing has just gotten out of control, um, despite the fact that there are more cranes in the sky in Toronto than any city in North America. We have a, a significant deficit in affordable housing, and not talking deep affordable, even mid-range affordable housing in our city. That, that means that more people are precariously housed, more people are struggling. And when you have a pandemic like this, it only highlights those systemic injustices and crises that exist. Mm, Leilani, the most financialized city in Canada, Toronto. Tell me. Yeah, no, it certainly is the... 
it's it's shocking what's happening in Toronto. And Frederick, you would have seen through your years of going to hot dogs and showing your films, etc. The change in Toronto, there are, as Saskia Sasson says, those dark towers that have gone up. Um, ton, I mean, as, as Mike said, all these cranes on the horizon and who, who is building for whom? Um, it's, a, it's, it's building for investors, it's luxury driven, it's investor driven housing. And there are big financial real estate investment trusts, which we've talked about before, that are just moving in and buying up the affordable stuff. So the new stuff going up is unaffordable. And the affordable existing stuff, apartments that just everyday people are living in are being bought by the big companies. Achelius is one of them, the Swedish Achelius, uh, but others, Starlight, and there are others. Uh, and they're raising Raising rents and forcing people out or forcing people into really terrible circumstances. So it's, no, it's sorry, grim. no, you, I have to I have okay. to defend my nation. You called Akeli Swedish director oh. register in Cyprus and Bahamas. Excellent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Agreed. Not Swedish. Not Swedish. Bahamas. <laughs> so take talk to the government of Bahamas. And the government of Cyprus. That's right. Mike, it's a challenge to be a politician in this time because it's, it's, it seems like a lot of the power has slipped away from politics in some way. Well, you know, I didn't get in this job for an easy ride. It's, uh, it, it, I'm, I got in this job so I could make sure that, that, that marginalized groups had a voice, that there was a, a voice for climate, that there was a voice for uh, ending and, or, or at least slowing and, and, and shortening the gap of inequality. Um, which has always been an up uphill str struggle. You know, people think of Toronto as a progressive town. Uh, election over election, we, we, we tend towards the center right as our leadership rather than actually electing progressive leaders. Uh, and that's a result of a historic change the provincial government did that actually um, made the, put the balance of power in the suburban areas of the city of Toronto. Uh, and not in the downtown core, where our, where we're actually experiencing the most growth, the most growth, and the most need by way of affordable housing. Uh, and so there was a time when Toronto was a progressive city where um, our we, we we taxed to spend on services, um, but now we seem to have an aversion to raising the revenue necessary to deliver on projects. I think it's also important to acknowledge um, the unique situation Canadian municipalities are in. Um, we deliver most of the services, but we collect only a fraction of the tax revenue. So we are expected to do so much, but we actually don't have a lot of the revenue generating power. We don't have a sales tax. We don't have an income tax. It's all done on property taxes. Um, those property taxes in the city of Toronto have been held low by government over government municipally. Um, but the expect I think there's a, there's a view out there that Toronto is a, a progressive city um, which I like to think we're, 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 we, we, we straddle that line, but we tend to elect center-right leadership in the city of Toronto, and that can be seen over the last two mayors that have governed the city over the last 12 years. Yeah, I was in City Hall to, to meet with Rob Ford. I mean, he slipped away. He didn't want to be interviewed, but so <laughs> you had some really... He, he became world famous, your, your mayor then. For uh, all the wrong reasons. <laughs> for all the wrong reasons. But then you managed to, to elect his brother to be uh, the, the governor, I guess. So it's uh, you keep voting for the family. I, I actively, <laughs> actively worked on elections against Doug Ford as premier. But sadly, we are where we are. 
I, I, well, anyway, I've been coming to Toronto for many years, and I, and I really love the city, but I, I, I've, the, the changes are so visible. And, and I think we've seen the same kind of rapid change in many cities around the world. We, in the podcast, we've been talking about Lisbon or Barcelona or Berlin or Prague or, you know, many cities have been experiencing this, this extreme uh, change. And Leilani, it seems like it's the, it's the legislation that makes it easier to, to invite the real estate investment trusts and so on, this kind of tax releases to... So how do you see that, Leilani? Mm. I do. I just want to comment on, on the changes in Toronto. And Toronto, for me, ha- has been a special city. I did all of my studies at the University of Toronto, so was there from 18 for 15 years after that. Um, and I always felt Toronto was a really special city, and I think the qual- that quality of Toronto has gone. Um, the way there are neighborhoods right downtown, um, it was always a kind of, it, it used to feel like a place where you could be anyone in Toronto, and you could kind of make it no matter who you were in Toronto. And now I think it, it, it has the feeling of a corporate city to me, especially when you're right downtown um you know just it 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 it's just that special quality seems to have eroded and i do think it is related to the uber financialization of residential real estate and as you say frederick i mean the government has created laws that invite these actors in a hundred percent i mean they are not even taxed like corporations so they fly in and have preferential tax treatment, which is why they set themselves up the way they do. So of course, they're going to dominate the real estate landscape. You know, when we're in the middle of a pandemic, and they have incredible liquidity, low interest rates, money is cheap, as we always say, then they're, they're going on a shopping spree as, as we speak. The question is, um, and Mike spoke to this, I'm I wouldn't mind Mike talking to this a little bit more like what can the city itself do even if the city was more progressive what could you do in light of the fact that you said Mike that the city doesn't have that much power is there anything that you could do are you doing something well I I think where we have power is we have the ability to mobilize our citizens like no other level of government we're like the closer we're the closest level of government to the people and I think there's a lot of trust there uh, notwithstanding the lack of trust for politicians, more generally speaking, and that probably is true around the world, um, I think there's a lot more trust for the local politicians, particularly because we're unaffiliated with a political party. Um, there are obvious connections uh, and that, that, that people can make, and, and certainly there are groups that organize together. Um, but because of that, uh, there, there's some independence there, and there's some actual willingness on the part of city council to work together as a more unified body. You, you get a lot of motions calling on the federal and provincial government coming out of city council that are unanimous, that call for changes to, to, to laws provincially and, and federally. Um, but along the commodification of housing, there, there, there does seem to be a couple of things we can do. Uh, just this week at city council, we'll be debating a vacant property tax uh, so for, for, for units that are being held vacant, um, we will tax them as Vancouver does and has done for several years now in the city of Toronto. We're just catching up, but we'll vote on that. Um, we'll vote on that actually tomorrow. Um, it will pass probably almost unanimously, if not unanimously. Um, and I think that's our power is, is we can break some of those um, traditional partisan left-right silos. Great example is a small town in Quebec 
couple years ago, I think it was about 15 years ago, passed a law against cosmetic pesticides. And the city, their, their town, it was a town at the time, it was actually my parents' hometown, Hudson, Quebec. They passed a law saying, we don't, we're going to outlaw cosmetic pesticides because it impacts our water supply, which it does. And they were, were taken to court because they said, it's outside of your power. You can't, you can't do that. Um, they, in fact, won because they pressed the boundaries of their, of, of their jurisdiction. And then, lo and behold, other cities across the, count, across the country, including Toronto, adopted the same policies. But then provincial governments started doing it. So municipal governments didn't have to do it anymore. So we mainstream these policies. And by pushing the boundaries of our, of our jurisdiction, sometimes we lose. We had a plastic bag ban in Toronto that wasn't upheld in the courts. Um, but sometimes we lose, but it still gets that idea out there. Uh, with, with plastic bags, all the grocery stores changed over to paper or charging a fee, which is really what we wanted to accomplish, reducing the amount of plastic. So it did, like we, our, our powers and, and what we did at council can affect change, even if we don't have direct power over it. Um, and, and I think that's one powerful thing. And so when you look at some of the things that the city of Toronto uh, has done, uh, around housing, the rapid housing initiative that uh, the federal government is working with the city on where we build units very quickly, build supportive units very quickly. We're undertaking that now with several hundred units. Um, like this is, these are the types of programs and policies we can help mainstream, help implement so that the federal government can say, there's a success story. Now let's invest more because we know we can do it. The power of politics, uh, I mean, to, to communicate politics. I, I, I like politicians that actually believe that politics can make a difference. And <laughs> that's good. But Mike, uh, we've seen some tough images coming out of Toronto. Armed police, you know, horses, dogs, and all to just send homeless people away. How do you, how do you yourself react to those images? Well, first, when I saw the images, um, and, and it's been a couple of occasions now where the, the city uh, with the police have gone in to remove encampments, um, to issue and then execute trespass notices to the residents living there, um, it, it, it distresses me in a number of ways. One is we should not be using coercive showing of force or force uh, on any of our residents. It's certainly nonviolent. Um, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't be using those tactics. The second reason why it's so distressing is it was on the front page of the newspaper for maybe one day. And it distresses me that it, it, it has come to the point that, that, that it doesn't seem to even be that big, an, that big of an issue. Um, that treating people in such a way that, that initiating the escalation of force that not treating people in a compassionate way, that is what hurts so much, I think, in, in how, how we've been seeing it. And we know um, there, there are local concerns around encampments, and you mentioned it at the top, um, that, uh, that there is a feeling that, that people feel unsafe in the space as a result of people living there, and, and some of which have um, serious and significant mental health and addiction issues. Uh, but I, I don't believe that we get to where we want to be in a, in, in, by taking a path we want to take by, by sending in police. Uh, I think, and I have been advocating uh, with the mayor and senior staff for months now, is we should be sending in um, uh, teams of, of, of social workers 
and not just once a week or a couple times a week to the same encampment. Let them build strong relationships. Let, let them have conversations. Don't go in saying, well, when are we going to get you out of here? Go in saying, what do you need? What do we need you to get access to in order to, um, in order to get you housing, which is where we, we know we need people. We, we know we can't have people and it's not healthy for people to be living in parks indefinitely. So Leilani, I mean, you've been working with homeless people. Uh, that's been your professional life, basically. And you've been very critical to, I mean, to the government in Ottawa, your hometown, but also now the, the, the government in, in, in Toronto. But I know you're also commenting on Skid Row in Los Angeles, the encampment in Echo Park, LA, or encampments under bridges in San Francisco. So, I mean, this is like, it's... It's actually some kind of plague of, of so many people now living in the streets in rich countries. So what do you, how do you see this, Leilani? What, what should the government do in, in Toronto? I, of course, liked very much what Mike was saying about the inappropriateness of bringing in security forces and police officers as, as if that's somehow some solution to any of this. I find it so distressing, um, I have to say, because when you send in police, normally then what you're what you're doing is you're saying that there's a crime being committed, that there are criminals, and um, when you do that with people living in homelessness, then you erase their humanity, the fact that they are subjects of a system that doesn't work for them, um, and and I find that so upsetting because I've talked to hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people living in homelessness all around the world. And the thing that they say to me, no matter what country I'm in, what they say to me is, I just want to be treated like a human being. I just want my dignity. I mean, it's it's, it's phenomenal. It's like a it's it is a it is a global pattern. The plague to me is not homelessness. The plague is the is the criminalization of people living in homelessness, the failure of governments to understand that these are people who have human rights that aren't being realized, and that the failure, if there's a failure, it's not the personal failure of people living in homelessness, it's the failure of governments to do what's necessary to to ensure these people have adequate housing. So it is very distressing to me. I also think you can't, like, it's very nuanced. Frederick, you said neighbors, residents, are afraid and don't want to be mingling in parks with people living in homelessness. And we have to understand that there's some truth to that, whether they're really at risk at all is another issue. But that's how people feel. And then at the same time, you have a group of people whose rights are being denied. This is a very nuanced, quite complicated situation. To me, the only way and I say this in push the film, the only way that we move forward is through conversation. And as Mike so astutely and eloquently said, when you bring in police, you lose conversation. That conversation's over at that point, right? And so you've broken trust and people will go deep. I mean, people living in homelessness now will be hiding because they're hiding from the police. And so then it's harder to find them. And I don't know. It, to me, it's created a real mess. And the numbers of homeless people are growing all the time. I mean, in, in Push the Film... I'm filming in a in a rooming house in Parkdale with Phil who says if I'm kicked out I will have the heaven pissing on me and I'm guess that's what he's getting now 
because the, I mean this was I mean his house is now a luxury condo for students or something. So I mean a lot of these kind of affordable homes are gone, and that was not, it wasn't a nice place that that rooming house. It was really horrible, but people were living there, and that was it was their home, and now it's gone. So Mike, where where should people go? Well, there's going to be a lot more people that are going to be looking for places to go because right now, uh, the, what, what we've learned is 11% of residents of Toronto, of renters, are in arrears on their rent as a result of the, the pandemic or other contributing factors. 11% of people. How many people could that be, more or less? Um, the actual number, that, like we're looking in the tens of thousands. Wow. And we have a shelter system that's before the pandemic was already at the brink. You know, about 10 years ago, I think it was about 15 years ago, we sent a, set a standard saying we don't want to ever get more than 90 95% of our shelter uh, beds filled. Well, we've been running close to, a, to 100% for, for that decade. Uh, a couple of years ago, after years of advocacy, we said, you know, in the wintertime, we should set up respite sites that are low barrier that anyone can go into just so that they've got a place to sleep, they get food, they have some showers, they got a warm place. Those were supposed to be temporary while we were expanding our shelter system. Those have been up for the four years since they've been installed. Um, and, and then the pandemic hits. So we go out and we, uh, we, we have to accommodate physical distancing within our shelters. So we opened up some community center space. We started contracting and leasing hotel rooms for years so that we can, can help stabilize the, the shelter situation. Um, but it's still not enough. We still don't have enough beds for people that, uh, that, that want them in the city. And month to month, we have a tool that tracks month to month what's the growth in chronic homelessness or people accessing our shelter system. I just looked it up from April to May which is the latest data, we saw an increase of 100 people experiencing chronic homelessness on our streets. We were able to house 280 of them, but we had another 620 come into the system. Uh, so the, the, the problem is only getting worse. Um, in, in the neighborhood I represent, we purchased a, an empty seniors home that would have been on its way to, I think it was actually pur purposed by an investment trust. The city has now bought it back. Um, the, the investment trust made a lot of money off that uh, of that transaction, but now we have housing for 250 people um, experiencing homelessness, and that will be through a supportive housing model. But we need more, and we need it faster. We also have some tools with inclusionary zoning. Um, that means in all new development, there soon will be um, there 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 soon will be affordable housing in, in every new development. Um, but that's not gonna that's probably not gonna reach the most uh, the, the most hard to house those that are struggling the most with chronic homelessness. Uh, you know, I like I I, I grew up in a in a, in a co-op in the city of Toronto, a mixed income co-op um, that was surrounded by by a neighborhood of mixed income of those very wealthy um, that live downtown because of the close their proximity to the banking sector, uh, and that those those that live in deep poverty and live downtown because of the proximity to the core services they depend on. That balance isn't achieved in a lot of places in the city. And when you, when you don't see it, I, I, I think that it, it tends not to, you tend not to learn the compassion about, uh, uh, that, that you should be building a city for, for everyone along that spectrum of, uh, of income and ability, uh, rather than just those that live in your immediate neighborhood. Wow, it's it, I mean the the picture that comes out from Toronto listening to you Mike and Leilani it's it's kind of uh, it's a bit depressing and we have the financial crisis we have a government 
that invites money to come and save the country. And then these investors, they get credit reliefs, and then they just go in and they build, 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 but they don't build for the people in, in the city. And and these these investors are now making more money than ever. They're richer than ever. I mean, the, the, the billionaires became like 40% richer during the pandemic. And now the city, like you're sitting there with a city budget, and you have, you have to spend a lot of money to, to kind of save people who, who've been kicked out of the system. And this is not only a Toronto story. This is repeated in city after city all around the world. So the, the cities are sitting there with a problem. And of course, that's why also city governments normally are more progressive than than the, the national governments because they actually have to face the problems. Leilani, how do you how do you see this going? Well, how do I see this going? I don't I don't know. I don't know. I mean I'm I'm always hopeful when I meet city councillors like Mike and there's a sort of group of them who are really actively working to make sure that the city of Toronto is a city for everyone as Mike said, and right now, I mean, it doesn't feel, Toronto does not feel like it's a city for everyone right now. It really, to me, as a kind of outsider, because I'm sitting here in Ottawa, and I have this international perspective, to me, Toronto feels like a city for rich people. I think it's a big fight to make it a city for everyone. So I, but I do see little, you know, strains of hope. This, this vote on a vacancy tax, um, I think that's super important. Is it going to be enough? Of course not. But all if we, you know, have to chip away, chip away and and keep the voices of the marginalized communities, the disadvantaged communities very alive and very present at city council. And hopefully there will be some change. And I'll just keep chipping away in my own way, talking to the city of Toronto. <laughs> yeah. But Mike, it seems like you also need support from your national government in a stronger way. We do. And from our provincial governments, you, you know, supportive housing, which isn't the only thing we need, but it's one thing we need is funded by healthcare dollars. That's where it should be coming from. I argued the city should also just fund more if our premier and provincial government won't come to the table with money. I Unfortunately, my motion's lost at city council, but I'll keep trying. And so bo both levels need to come. The federal government needs to come in with dollars and perhaps their expropriation powers because the only, the only body that can use emergency expropriation powers to take some of the real estate that is destined for um, high-end uh, residential and actually allow the city to convert it in a timely fashion into um, more affordable housing is the federal government. We simply, the city just doesn't have that power. Uh, we also don't have the revenue necessary, uh, the, the revenue sources necessary to do that. So both, all the city, all the levels of government need to come together, the city to deliver the projects and administer the, uh, the the housing once it's built, but the province and the federal government really need to come to the table in a major, major way in the next 18 months if we're not going to experience another crisis like we are right now. Mm. Leilani, uh, in, the, in the end of the film, we see that you actually propose a new legislation for Canada, uh, human rights-based housing legislation. Tell me, is this in place now? That legislation is definitely in place now and has been for two years. Um, but isn't there a conflict then? Because what's happening in Toronto is totally breach of that legislation, isn't it? <laughs> don't, don't ask me to weigh in on that, whether it's a breach of the legislation. But I can say 
um, that, you know, we have to understand legislation is a first move. It was the it's the first time the national government has recognized that housing is a human right. And it's going to take some time to breathe life into that legislation. I don't think enough life has been breathed into it. Some small things have started to happen. But um, I liked what Mike said about this expropriation. And and I think that legislation should empower the federal government to say, okay, we've recognized housing as a human right, we have a crisis, we have a housing crisis in this country, and we will do whatever it takes to ensure the right to housing is enjoyed by those who, who are not enjoying it. And that might mean expropriation, especially in the middle of a crisis like the pandemic. But I'm not I mean, we've been not just me, many advocates have been pushing the national government that way. And they haven't gone that way. They have other programs that aren't bad, you know, and I, you know, this rapid housing initiative that Mike mentioned, where cities have been enabled to purchase quickly or build quickly. That's important. But that expropriation power is is something that the federal government, national level government has and isn't using. And I, I think things are desperate enough in this country that that that's necessary. I mean, there are, there are 235,000 people living in homelessness in, in, in Canada, right? So that's a huge amount. Uh, and that's, it, you know, we're, we're in the top 10 richest countries in the world, even in the pandemic. So it's really not acceptable. I, I was just going to switch over to, because in, in the opening of PUSH, we opened in a bar in Little Portugal, where the amazing artist, activist, Michael Lewis Johnson is talking to the audience, which is doing every Saturday afternoon, playing, singing. But he says, okay, we made this neighborhood hip. We, the creative people, the artists, uh, and now we can't afford to stay. Is that, isn't this a scary thing, uh, Mike, that that your city might lose the vibe because the, the, the people who create the vibe, they, they can't afford to stay. You know, I think that's been a problem for a century that um, a neighborhood is made popular by um, a group of individuals. It may be um, a, a group of, uh, that, that immigrate through um, into, into Canada, into Toronto. Um, it, it may be a, a, those that the, the artists that we've seen, and I think that's this is probably been the case in all over the world, I suspect, um, that I think the problem is we've now hit a stage that those artists have been pushed so far out of the core that uh, and, and, and the, um, the commodification of, of land in the core has gotten so high that even their shadow, uh, or their like the the footprints they left are 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 all gone. Uh, my my stepmother, who was an artist by trade, turned into a politician later in life, but was an artist by education and trade. First had a had a a small workshop in what's now Liberty Village in Toronto, a small a a, a newly redeveloped neighborhood with some of the old industrial buildings that uh, that that predated the residential. Um, but now that that area is almost unaffordable for anyone but big, big tech. And in fact, that's who they market to. Um, that's who the buildings uh, market to. They're not even marketing to um, the, the young artists anymore. And so, so finding that raw space that is needed to, uh, to like the blank canvas that's needed for artists to, to, and, and for communities to, to develop and, and, and build it to, to, 
to their um, their liking in their image that is being pushed so far out and and may not exist in the city of Toronto much anymore um, simply by virtue of the property changing hands so many times and redevelopment driving up the price of land the land speculation that is has existed in the city for many years um, and it's very unless we start protecting spaces like that then we're we're, we're going to lose it entirely. Um, so we have managed to secure a couple small areas uh, it, it recently. In fact, in the next couple of days, it was just announced uh, Black Lives Matter Canada has secured a, uh, a, a rather significant building in the city of Toronto. The city will hopefully support it financially uh, with the purchase and retrofit um, to build a center of arts and activism. So we're, there are attempts being made, um, but all of a sudden the city's now having to bid against large development interests for those same properties. And unfortunate is capitalism uh, that we aren't able to overcome that. If, if we can find a mechanism to, I, I certainly think that there would be some support on Toronto City Council, whether or not it's this generation or two or three generations down the road, because we don't want to lose the heart of our city um, for the sake of the, the profits of already wealthy uh, corporate masters. Wow, that's the closing line of this spot pushback talks. Leilani, how are you? I mean, you told me that Mike was a, a man of hope and solution. Mike, give us, we, we were wrapping this podcast now. It's a little mist of the summer and we all want to go out to the sea. And, you know, um, for at least I live by the sea. But anyway, we want to have some, give us some hope. Where's, what's the hope for Toronto? I think more than ever, more than ever, people are willing to put work in or put money in to helping find solutions. I just, I'm not sure that politicians are, are as brave as some of the members of the public are right now that are speaking out, that are giving support, that are using their time and money to try to make life better for others in their community, that are trying to protect some of these things we were just talking about, that are trying to protect these cultural institutions, these spaces for artists, for activists, for, uh, for, for marginalized groups. I, I'm, I'm, I feel like the community is there, um, but politicians are two steps behind. And I think it's because uh, we're, we're quite a bit more risk averse than, uh, than, than I think many would hope. Um, and if we can ensure, and if we can elect leaders or ensure that they have our support, in raising our taxes to pay for things. Because this isn't something people should have to do for, on the weekend with some charitable time, uh, right? Like this, it, we should, we should contribute any way we can, but that's the role of government. And if a government like the city of Toronto is unwilling to raise the revenue necessary to deliver services, very basic um, human rights services uh, to uh, to, to the most marginalized, and we got a real problem there. But I think that the, and I, I'd like to think the pendulum is swinging uh, a little bit away from us thinking ourselves as, as independent units in a, in a city to us thinking of, of ourselves as part of a, of a larger organism. And the second that happens and, and gains more momentum, and I think we see it through some of the initiatives that have come out of COVID, um, the, the second that momentum starts swinging, I think we'll hopefully see a change in the way 
uh, people view uh, those least fortunate in the city of Toronto, those struggling for housing, um, because of so many people are, and we all know someone who's losing their housing or being evicted and ha- and, and struggling to find another even slightly affordable um, place to live in the neighborhood that we grew up in. Um, I, I think we're just going to see a, a greater shift in people's attitudes towards accepting affordable and supportive housing within their community, as well as accepting that they're going to have to pay a little bit more if we're all uh, going to have a place in our city. Mailani, that was Mike Layton, city councillor in, in, uh, in Toronto. Wow. What, what are we going to do? We have to, we, when this time is out for today, uh, but we will keep talking. And it's also summer, so from next week we will introduce our summer series, won't we? We will. As what you is that? as you swim in the ocean and I <laughs> I don't know hide in my bunker, uh, yeah. we'll be introducing our summer session highlights from pushback talks over the last year. Yeah. So, in so stay stay close to pushback talks. Subscribe to it. Tell your friends to listen to our podcast. Share it on your social media. And if you happen to have a credit card and you don't think that $2 is a lot, you can actually then also become what? You can become a Patreon, <laughs> a Patreon of Pushback Talks. So go to patreon.com and look for us. Okay. Mike, this is for you. Uh, it's a possibility to support our podcast or not. <laughs> But thank you anyway for, for being our guest. And, and, and I wish you with all my heart a great summer, but also... Uh, success with your work in defending your city because we need more politicians like you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. And thank you, Leilani. Talk soon. Talk soon, Frederick. Bye. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushthefilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next week.